On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, there has been a move on social media particularly, but picked up by the Prime Minister saying the name of the man who killed 22 people in Nova Scotia should not be released. Nobody should know his name. He should not get any notoriety. Is that right? Is that the way it should be done? I mean, we certainly can understand the sentiment, but is that truly the way the media should handle things? We'll talk with the editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator about that. We're also going to talk about the economy, as has been a topic that's been going on for a long time, but particularly about oil. There's a suggestion that perhaps Canada should not be taking any more offshore oil and producing enough by itself that it can be self-sustainable. And then Rick Zamperin is going to join us, and we're going to talk about Well, the NFL draft and whether or not a man was on the draft coverage having a poop on a toilet (laughs) off to the side of the frame. Uh, You'll have to stick around to understand. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. As you have heard many times, I'm sure, this week, it's been a tragic week in this country. Out in Nova Scotia, Canada's largest mass shooting took place. 22 people lost their lives in a horrific, I was going to say act of violence. It was more than one act of violence. It was an ongoing but multiple act of violence. And in fact, there's a vigil going on right now that people across the country are joining in to be part of online for the people out there who passed away in this horrible act. Well, as a result of this, there has been a push on social media, largely on social media, and it's been bolstered by the Prime Minister who jumped in and offered his support and said the same thing, for the media to not name the killer. Don't give him any attention, don't give him the infamy he may or may not have desired, we don't really know, but this is the, 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 the way that people are attacking this. Don't give this man the attention and the fame that he might get. Keep the attention on the victims. And it's a noble sentiment. There's no question it's a noble sentiment that people are bringing, I believe, with good intentions. But is it the right sentiment? Is it the right thing to do? Paul Burton is editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator. He joins me now. Paul, how are you tonight? Hello. Hey, Paul, how are you tonight? Good. Um, What was your thought when you first heard people saying this killer should not be named, that we shouldn't put the spotlight at all on the person who carried out this action. What was your impression or your inclination at that moment? Uh, My inclination as a citizen and, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, someone who has a great deal of sympathy uh, for for those who are suffering from the tragedy is, yeah, absolutely. Why do we do this? Unfortunately, it's not particularly practical uh, from a news sense and and really from an information sense. Well, sure. And and as you mentioned, from a human level, I understand it. Uh, I I understand and I I believe the people who are making these cases are doing it with good intentions. Um, And this is not, uh, you've heard this before, right? This has come up before. I think in New Zealand, they have had a law at times that bans naming killers. Is that right? I'm not sure about the ban, but I know that they were doing it there, yeah. Is it ever discussed here? I mean, when when you've sat around with other editors, has it ever come up as a discussion point about should we name this person? Yes, I believe it has, and it always should. And so, you know, let's let's just sort of unpack it a bit. If if there's a, a let's say what we what we call an active shooter, or or to to put it more bluntly, a killer on the loose. 
I mean, our uh, obligation as a as a as an information source is to give readers and subscribers as much information as we can. And for us to withhold the name would not be fair. It would probably not be responsible, and we we undoubtedly be criticized for it. So, you know, you, you know, that's just not on not giving information to people that we have. And then to extend that further, then. That's the kind of criticism we would get from half our readers. Half of the readers would congratulate us for doing what uh, people are talking about on social media. And the other half would say, well, who are you to hold back that information? Keep it to yourselves. Well, uh, we do not have all the information that we uh, arguably need to, uh, uh, you know, uh, run our lives responsibly. I know this is a very deep question for a Friday evening, but philosophically, in a in a murder story, what is the role of the media? What 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 is the role as far as telling? Is it put out every bit of detail, every information, every bit of information you have, or or what is the intent or the purpose? What's the role of the media at that time? Well, the, the role I know it's deep. Media, yeah, <laughs> the role just of a light touch, deep. yeah. <laughs> the role at, of the media at any time is to share information, not to withhold it. So, I mean, that's where we start from, right? If we have the information, we should share it. Um, we don't always do that. We're trying to be responsible. And we're trying to be sensitive. Um, in a in a in a murder, I mean, uh, you can make arguments on both sides. Uh, how how are we helping? Uh, by withholding the name, and there is an argument for that that has been uh, stated uh, as recently as by you just a few moments ago. But there's also a responsibility to say, okay, who is it, and more information is better, and what can we learn from this, and why? And uh, you know, I I, I think um, maybe one of them, the latter, is a bit stronger than the former, in my opinion. Okay. Well, and one of the things that always comes to my mind is if you have information and don't share it, people are going to fill that vacuum with something. So you're going to have rumors, you're going to have innuendo, you're going to have people throwing out other names. And, and in my mind, better to have the responsible or at least the reliable, credible organization tell you what's right. Yeah, absolutely. In a, in the, in the modern digital age, uh, we're being, most information is available um, somewhere else anyway. Whether, whether people can rely on it is, a, is another matter. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about what happened out in Nova Scotia this week with the horrific multiple murders, 22 people killed, and not so much about the killing. I mean, that has been covered excellently and thoroughly all across this country. But about the the move that is afoot, especially on social media, to say, don't name the killer, never name the killer. Don't give him any attention. Keep the spotlight off him. Keep the spotlight on the victims and let the killer rot in his anonymity. And as we were saying last segment, it's a fine sentiment to have as a human being, but there are all kinds of problems with this. Paul Burton, the editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator, joins me again. And, and Paul, here, here's the, the real tricky part when you put rules like this in place, I would think. Um, where's the line? Because is it, okay, so if you kill one person, is it okay to name you? Or is it the other way? Say if you kill way more people, then we can name you. Or, or do we never name anybody who's ever killed anybody ever again? It becomes this massive riddle that I don't know how you wade through it. Yeah, I think uh, the uh, half 
the half of journalists like rules and the other half don't, and I'm of hmm. the latter group. Um, you know, you can't really be making rules for anything. You have to treat each situation on its own merits. And, um, uh, you know, each one re- requires a discussion, and we always have those in newsrooms. And, you know, in a, in a case, in, in, in these cases, just because you're naming someone um, doesn't mean you necessarily need to, to name them prominently in, in headlines or in uh, captions or in, uh, you know, explanatory decks or anything like that, nor do you need to use their, you know, their photographs or, or that kind of thing, which is sometimes done uh, perhaps without as much thinking as there should be. And uh, we do have some guidelines on that. And all editors and uh, journalists are pretty um, cognizant of the the efforts not to glorify these kinds of things and and try to uh, walk a fine line between uh, giving readers the information they need without uh, needlessly glorifying it. And I was thinking about this today before I had you on and like, here's where the conundrum comes in is that you say, okay, he killed 22 people and and there's not a person I don't think out there who's saying that's anything but horrendous. And so someone says, well, because he killed so many, it's extra important as the prime minister said that we not mention him as if killing one person somehow, I guess is less horrible. But, um, but then if you extend that, and I mean, I know this is an extension maybe to the ludicrous. But Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler killed more people than anyone else. Should we not name them ever then yeah. because they are even worse killers? Yeah, it's a good point. And, and, and also, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and I, I don't know the answer to whether what, you know, what motivates these kinds of people. Um, I, I accept the theory that, uh, and, that, that, uh, that notoriety could be a motivator, but... Uh, let's face it, these people are pretty ill in the first place. Uh, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. If we come closer to home, um, probably I would argue in the modern era anyway, the most notorious killer or killers in this area would be Paul and Carla Bernardo. If we had never named them, and that was before you got to the paper for sure, but if we had never named Paul and Carla Bernardo, would that have somehow made the crimes less hideous or made the public revulsion less intense? No, I can't, I, I, I can't answer that question, but I can't imagine not naming them. It would be irresponsible not to name them. I mean, those, those people are, those people are still around, right? We, we need to know, we need to know how we need information in order to run our lives. And that's the kind of information we need. Uh, I just can't imagine uh, that ever being a, po- a responsible possibility. Well, and more recently, not in Hamilton, but and I'm drawing a blank on the name. Uh, you may remember, but the little girl who was killed out near London by the girl and her boyfriend, the woman yeah. and her boyfriend. Yeah. And when she was starting to be moved into a, a low-grade prison and people caught on, nobody, no member of the media, the uproar would never have come if we didn't know that name of that person to be noticing that this person was being moved. Exactly, exactly. And people, that's why, you know, that's why we, that's why we have news and newspapers and journalists to, to tell people, you know, this is what's happening on your street, in your neighborhood, in your city and beyond. So people can uh, act accordingly. It's you know that is that is the crux of the matter. We we need to share 
with people the information they need to run their lives. So let me throw all power of journalistic omnipotence onto you for a moment. You are the ultimate arbiter that gets to decide how this is done. What would your decision be? If, if it was, you know, and again, I know you said you can't have a, a blanket rule for everything, but as a general rule, how, what, what is the proper way to handle this the best way? The general rule is to, is more information, not less. That is how uh, most editors should run a, an organization. That doesn't mean, pardon me, doesn't mean we should, don't, we, we share everything, but in this case, as I said, if the if the shooter if it's a live shooter, the shooter is alive, and there's a kill basically a killer on the loose. People need to know as much information as possible. If they are dead, if they are killed by the police, or they kill themselves, or or, or under other circumstances, then you know you you might have a time for a conversation and say, okay, how are we going to handle this? Most of the time, we would name the killer. Um, that being said, you know, editors are human and we are, uh, we can easily be influenced by great numbers. So if, you know, Canadians had felt strongly about this and, and, uh, you know, and there was a movement towards this, I'm sure that we would be, we would be listening carefully to it. Paul Burton, editor in chief of the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for the time tonight. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Uh, just a, uh, one little addendum to this one because i i feel that naming is better but keep one thing in mind as well when i mentioned paul and carlo bernardo not mentioning them would have prevented a whole lot of other victims of them from coming forward because don't forget he was the scarborough rapist as well it, like these are these are tough tough matters and it's not an insensitivity thing by any stretch but i think it's a dangerous place to go even for our prime minister to say you know what don't name people who do bad things that's that's the prime minister can stick with prime ministering. And I don't think that he should be dipping his toe too much into telling the media how to do this because he I don't think he's right. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about this a number of times now and you've heard it elsewhere as well. The narrative that there's two things going on right now. There's two problems facing the world. One is health. One is medical. One is this virus that is obviously causing issues. The other is the economy. And there have been some arguments that seem to suggest that the two are individual set apart from each other, that you can't do the economy until you get the health fixed, or you can't fix the health until without the economy. I'm of the belief that you can at least be preparing for when we start to come back, that you can at least be preparing for how do we make sure that we don't slip into a really, really, really bad time. And if we're talking about money, that means we're probably bringing in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, which is exactly what we're going to be doing. Marvin, how are you this evening? I am fine, thank you, and hope everyone's doing well out there. Absolutely. Um, Marvin, I read a piece today, and this is a, a big part of the economy. I read a piece today in the paper that suggested that Canada and the United States should, when this whole thing is over and things are starting to get back to normal, should ban oil imports from OPEC and Saudi Arabia and Russia and make their own energy pact because this would probably require something like two and a half million barrels of demand a day, which would be a huge boost to the Canadian and the U.S. economies. Good idea or bad idea? 
Well, I understand where that comes from. Uh, I've seen these memes on Facebook about how much oil we import from other places and isn't this terrible? Why aren't we completely self-sufficient? And the problem that we have today in 2020 is that where the oil is uh, produced, which is, tends to be north of Calgary, uh, even a little north of Edmonton, uh, those oil sands, it's a wonderful source of oil, but we don't have any refineries there. The refineries for those oil tend to be on the coast, the east coast and the west coast. So what we have to do is get the oil from where it's getting uh, uh, pumped out of the ground or, in the case of oil sands, sort of created through a process to those refineries. And you know what would help that process a lot is, let me think, uh, <laughs> pipelines, pipelines. But we don't have pipelines, so what we have is a very, very expensive way of moving oil. That's called train cars. And trust me, oil is being moved by train cars, but it's expensive, and therefore, if, if I'm a company, it just doesn't make any sense for me to spend the extra premium for that oil when I can get the oil from whatever country in the world. It, it, if you don't like Saudi Arabia, it could be Kuwait, it could be Venezuela, it could be Nigeria, and I can get it via big shiploads a lot more cheaply. So we tend to say, and this is always the case with natural resources, we take the path of least resistance. In many cases, it's easier and cheaper for Alberta oil to be shipped south to the United States and then for the coast to get their oil from places like Venezuela or Saudi Arabia because of the cost of all that transportation. It, theoretically, the idea, though, and, and you and I have talked before a number of weeks ago, many weeks ago, in fact, now, time flies, um, about when, when Saudi Arabia and Russia got into this price war and how it was decimate, decimating the Canadian oil that would remove us from being the victim of those kind of things, right? If we could figure out a way to do that, that would remove us from those price wars and we could carry on. Well, yes and no. So uh, it, it's a bit like saying, is there a different price for Canadian gold than Russian gold or American gold? Why, why would, if I was a Canadian producer of gold, give you a discount uh, or, uh, compared to what they're doing in other places? So in other words, once a commodity, oil is a commodity, once the world says, well, I think the rice price for that commodity is $50 a barrel or $60 a barrel, there's no Canadian price separate from that, uh, simply because it just doesn't make any sense. You'd always pay whatever the world said is the right number to pay for those things. So I'm not sure this, this, that's the question. I think it's more a strategic question, kind of like the other side of this is on uh, supplies. We're finding out that these masks and personal protective equipment, much of it is made in China. Why don't we make it ourselves? then that's an argument that's different. That's not about dollars and cents. That's simply about being at the mercy of other production sources. Um, and so, I, you know, I get those arguments. It's just not as easy to do as people might think because of where the oil is and where the refineries are. Or another way to think about it, where the oil is and where the demand is. There aren't a lot of people needing oil in uh, uh, north of Edmonton. They're all in southern Ontario or southern Quebec how do I get the oil from one point to the other? And sometimes it's easier to use the imported stuff than the domestic. So we don't have necessarily an immediate way to deal with this, but let's expand it to what you were saying before about masks or about even uh, I was reading that most of our or much of our medications are made offshore and we bring them back in here. So we are at the whim kind of of other countries. If they decide to shut it down, we're in a bit of a world of hurt. Can you see coming out of this, a change in attitude for a lot of people to say, okay, you know what, it's going to cost us a little more. Let's bring some of this manufacturing, whether it's oil, whether it's other things, back into our shores 
and make sure we're not facing this the next time something like this happens? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's again a very difficult question to answer because we got where we got over the last 20, 30, 40 years because consumers are not seeming willing to pay any kind of a premium. If mm. I can save a nickel, if I can save a dime getting the made in China stuff versus the made in Ontario stuff, people go for the made in China stuff. Uh, and in fact, they even say this, take the tax dollars. I don't want to give you any more tax dollars than I absolutely have to find the cheapest, find the cheapest, find the cheapest. So you search the world and you find the cheapest and you award them the contract. If the new mantra is, let's buy Canadian, let's buy Canadian, let's buy Canadian, I'm fine with that. But people have to understand that they're going to spend a little more for that. And I'm, I just think that what happens, we tend to be very, very short-sighted. We live almost completely <laughs> in the moment. When we get past this for the first three months, six months, a year, yes, yes, let's, let's support our own, let's buy Canadian. I've seen the memes on Facebook, let's only vacation in Canada and discover our own country. And we'll do that, but only for a while. And once we get comfortable again and the urge is gone and there have been another three crises in the world, I think the old mantra about save a dollar, save a dollar, save a dollar is going to come back again. And that's, and that's what makes this so hard. Because in Canada, we're only 37 million people. In China, 1.4 billion. To produce for that market, you've got much better economies of scale. You're always going to be cheaper. How can I justify that price premium if I'm running for office? And so it's going to be an interesting challenge. I think initially, Buy Canada wins. But two years, three years from now, it's a bit like 9-11. Do you remember all that stuff that happened? Uh, People forget. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if it's equal to the medical and the health side, but it's, uh, it is it is a huge, huge, huge issue. And Marvin, one of the things that I have been hearing in the last few days, and I, I got to admit, I completely do not understand this comment. A lot of people saying, okay, what's the plan for reopening the economy? And my response to that is, well, what do you mean, what's the plan? You tell people they can go back to work and the economy reopens. What am I missing? <laughs> well, you're thinking of it as I first did, that it was like a light switch, an off-on switch. We have it in the off position now, and then in some number of weeks, we're going to flick it into the on position. But I think now more than ever, we've begun to realize that it's more like a dimmer switch where we're going to move it up a little bit, see how that goes. We'll open it up a little bit more, see how that goes. So just to give you a sense of it, uh, most uh, places, uh, whether it's in Canada, the United States, or other countries around the world, are proposing somewhere between three to five phases. And before you can even begin phase number one, you have to have two weeks, two weeks, 14 days, in which the number of new cases declines day after day after day. Now, we're at the peak of the curve, and that's great, but if you can picture a bell curve or a normal distribution in your mind, being at the top of the curve, the numbers aren't going down. So we've got to let this go for some period of time until we get 14 days in which the numbers go down. Now, when we get to that point, then the idea is to crack open the door a little bit. So, okay, maybe we'll allow a few non-essential businesses. Maybe we'll get the golf courses open. Maybe we'll do this, but then we'll stop and we'll monitor for two more weeks because what we're worried about is this thing called a rebound. But if two weeks go by and the number of cases continue to decline, okay, we'll crack open the door a little bit more. Uh, To give you a quick example, Saskatchewan Premier Mo there has proposed the first crack open of the door on Monday, May the 4th, uh, and then the next open door would open on Tuesday, May 19th, 
assuming the numbers keep going in the right direction. He's actually proposing three more phases, but he can't put a date to them because he's just not certain. This weekend, we know in the United States, places like Georgia, Florida, uh, I think it's uh, Wisconsin, they're actually throwing the doors quite wide open very quickly. And we're going to watch over the next two weeks to see, do the numbers continue to go down or have they opened the door too quickly and do they go back up? And that is the nightmare scenario that we've been hunkered down for six weeks. We open the door too quickly and we're back to where we were. So really, when people are talking about a plan to reopen the economy, it's got nothing or very little to do with the economy. It still remains, how do we make sure that just people aren't getting sick? It's, it's not a, a strategy to somehow bolster the economy. That's, that's a naturally occurring phenomenon when the doors can be opened. Right. And I think, I think the reason for this is that uh, our governments, provincial and federal governments, have put in some various safeguards to, to cushion. I'm not saying everyone's being made whole. But whether it's the CERB payment or the wage subsidy, or today it was announced a, a program to help people with some rents, commercial people with some rents, we're doing this to get you to the other side, but we don't want to keep doing this. This is not the new normal forever. The idea is let's do it for whatever the right amount of time is. Is that eight weeks, 12 weeks, maybe even 16 weeks? And then let's, let's put this back to normal. If another wave starts to come out of another part of the world, in the fall or the spring of 2021, we'll handle it differently, we'll isolate it, we'll make sure it never gets back into this country again. But how do we do this in a way that protects citizens? And I suppose the major reason for this, Scott, is we know that people can have coronavirus and exhibit no symptoms for the first week, 10 days, maybe even two weeks of having the disease, but they are certainly capable of spreading it during that period of time. So because we, you're not symptomatic at the beginning, we can't just uh, isolate those people who are coughing or running a fever. By that point, you've already infected others. So if we're going through this dramatic action that we've gone through, we don't want to do it twice. You say this is not the new normal. We don't want to keep doing this. Are we sure this is not the new normal? Because I can see, honestly, I can see an awful lot of people saying, hey, why am I going to go back and work if the government wants to pay for me? I'm quite okay to stay home and take money. Right. Well, and, and bless them for being of that opinion. Not everybody. There's a lot of people who are conscientious and really want to sure. work, but I, I believe those people are out there. Yeah. Well, the problem, of course, is that the government is, is borrowing extraordinary amounts of money. We've never seen a government borrow this much money before in its life. And that's just not the Canadian government. That's every government around the world borrowing extraordinary amounts of money to bridge us to the other side, and they just can't keep doing that. Our Canadian government can't become a payroll to the country because remember, our government is just you and I, so it could do that, I suppose, if you're prepared to pay 75% tax to them, those who are still working, that would allow the others. But I don't think anyone's going to think that's the new normal. Now, how do we live this concept of social distancing? Uh, I'm wrapping up my spring school term. I don't teach in the summer months, but I will be teaching again in September. At this point, I'm planning not just a, an in-class version of the course and perhaps an online version of the course, but I'm thinking in class, will I be handing out masks at the start? So if the students are sitting there rather than just breathing on one another, maybe there'll be masks involved. Or maybe I'll make sure that there's one seat between every person. I may be in a bigger classroom. You know, these are some of the planning you have to do to see what, what, how fast we can get back to the old normal or is the old normal gone forever. Marvin Ryder, have a wonderful weekend. Take a little bit of time off. I appreciate your time. Anytime. Happy to help out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy that, I mean, we've, man, I've, I've hardly talked to this guy at all. 
Um, Rick Zanford, 900 CHML, does news, does weather, does sports, does a little bit of everything. And now, three times a week, does something called home games that, um, well, Rick Zanford and myself and Steve Milton from The Spec and Bubba O'Neill from CHCH doing a, a YouTube thing talking about sports issues rick and this just means for you even a little less sleep since we do this in the morning because you never you know you, you were 18 hours a day anyway the, uh, you know what this new initiative is so overwhelming and so time consuming i'm not sure how <laughs> i put it in my calendar but two, two things uh number one uh thanks for spearheading it because it, it was a wonderful idea especially at this moment of our lives with people kind of cooped up and you know, I, I think just craving content, and if you're a sports fan, this is a, a must-watch, so subscribe to the Home Games uh, YouTube uh, channel. It's It's been a lot of fun, and we've only just just begun, so, I, you know, the sky's the limit. But number two, just a quick hint on your, on your trivia question. Uh, you're talking London, England. The same river runs through London, Ontario, so there's a hint for all our There listeners. you go. There you go. So I didn't even need to say England. I could have just said London, and and we yeah. would have. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. There you are. Uh, no, it's um, it, it has been fun, and I would encourage people to take a look at it again. It's called Home Games. You can go on YouTube and look up Home Games Hamilton to find it. Um, as I say in the, I've written something about it in the paper tomorrow, just a little bit. We don't call it Home Games Hamilton officially because that's HGH, and I think there will be a whole different audience that might be looking at a YouTube channel <laughs> if we call our channel HGH. That's a good uh, call. Yeah, that that uh, we may be having a whole lot of drug-addled people coming up. Oh, yeah, details on HGH, human growth hormone. Um, Rick, last night I know you were up because, as I say, you're you sleep about 14 minutes a day, but you were watching the NFL draft, and I must say, uh, first of all, I was blown away yesterday because it's it's on again tonight. The fact that there were there are 32 teams, 32 general managers, 32 coaches, at least. 50 players who were hooked up with cameras in their house, uh, fans all over the place, Roger Goodell in his basement, other people. And it was technologically, it was a seamless thing. I, I was blown away that they could pull this thing off. Listen, I, I, and I'm watching round two. It's just, it's just started. The pick is in uh, officially with the Cincinnati Bengals at the 33rd overall. But I wholeheartedly They'll screw it up. Agree. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. It was such a... For, for so many things that could have gone wrong, just technically, uh, with, you know, you know, we've heard all the hacking rumors, uh, you know, what if the Wi-Fi goes down? What if the fiber optic, you know, something happens there? What if, you know, Goodell can't be seen because, you know, his basement kind of blocks out all the, the technological advances that the NFL has uh, kind of crafted? But uh, from, a, from a viewer standpoint, it was exceptionally entertaining because not only did you get the information that you wanted on which teams were picking which players, but you also got a little bit of a glimpse of how some of these uh, you know, future NFLers live with their families, how some of these GMs and head coaches, where they live, where they're coming from, you know, what their basements or living rooms or whatever look like. If you're Jerry Jones, what his $250 million yacht looks like. It was a great... Is that where he was doing it from? He was doing it from his yacht, yes, and it's valued at two. I didn't know that, okay. Yeah, well, oh. I mean, it's that it, it's that luxurious that you can tell whether it was, you know, a penthouse in downtown Arlington or a, or a yacht in the middle of who knows where he was in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere. But, yeah, it was, it was such compelling TV in terms of, 
you know, just seeing all these different aspects. And I think all the while kind of waiting, you know, is something going to happen? Is the feed going to go down? Is there going to be some pick that's going to get screwed up by, uh, you know, some kind of technical snafu? But none of that happened. And truth be told, I hope they, I hope they stay with this kind of format. Obviously, when things go back to quote-unquote normal, they're still going to have, you know, all the analysts on stage. All the fans are going to be there. Roger Goodell will be on the stage, wherever the case is. Uh, but I, I hope they have a lot of cameras in some of the other kids' homes, their families. Uh, maybe their agents can be there. They could have, you know, massive parties, as we've seen in the past. But I really hope they keep that element to the broadcast in years to come. I did, I did enjoy uh, of any of it. And, you know, I, like some of the stuff is, to me, is just complete filler. But I get it. you got to fill time. Yeah. But the shots inside some of the homes, it, it is really interesting to me because some of the general managers – San Francisco's general manager was doing it from an office that was about the size of the office I'm sitting in right now, which is a glorified broom closet. I mean, I was <laughs> amazed that he was there. And then you got other guys who was in front of this enormous, it looks like he was in a hunting lodge with deer heads and a stoning fire. You're going, okay, we, we, we now get the sense of when you are making millions and millions of dollars a year, your options are for how what kind of house you can buy. And some of them were pretty darn. You still there? Yeah, you still there? You're kind of breaking up. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. We lost you there for a second. Yeah, no, some, some of those homes that those guys were in were pretty darn impressive to uh, to yeah. look at. Well, two thing, two of them struck out to me. You mentioned the Mike Zimmer one with the, the enormous fireplace, and he had, you know, his, his heads of beer. That he, I, I'm presuming that he had hunted. But the two that struck out to me, besides the Jerry Jones yacht, was Mike Vrabel's place, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. And, and, and it, was, it wasn't it wasn't because of the place, but it was who was in the place. And number two was Cliff Kingsbury, who is the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, and they just had the Cardinals on their Instagram account had a still shot or just a photo of him kind of watching his big screen TV above his fireplace, but uh, just to his left, kind of as we're looking at him. Uh, off to the side is this uh, just enormous wall of just windows and through the windows you can see obviously his backyard or side yard but even more so in the distance the cascading rocky mountains in arizona it was just an, an unbelievably uh, wonderful picture and 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 one that uh, hopefully the cardinals can point to to say hey this is our good luck charm and and gives them uh, you know a boost in the win-loss column but we got to talk about mike rabel i mean if anyone yes, has not yes. seen this photo so as we know, you know, they're panning to each head coach or general manager and Vrabel, the head coach of the Tennessee Titans, just kind of hunched over, concentrating on the pick that he's just made. But in the background, there are two individuals that you can't uh, help but, <laughs> but see right off the bat. To our right is uh, a guy who I think is wearing Vrabel's uh, Pro Bowl jersey or, or, or Patriots jersey from years ago, and he's just kind of standing But looked there a lot like... But looked a lot like Joe Exotic from Tiger King. Yes, yes. and With the, the mullet. And to the left of the screen is another individual who looks like Frozone from the Incredibles <laughs> movie. And then just off to the left, and I didn't see this at, at the uh, uh, yes. first time I saw this photo, because, I mean, you're so captivated by the other two gentlemen. But way to the left, it appears that someone is sitting on a toilet. And we see this figure in, in the reflection in some glass behind Vrabel. Now, they're all saying that, you know, this person is watching TV and eating, but no, which, which I can buy because who sits on the toilet with the door open? But then again, on national TV during the NFL <laughs> draft. So, so I have, I've put this picture with 
with my Paul, go to the spec.com if you want to see a large version of this. Go to the spec.com and look for my call about this, and you will get a large picture. And you decide if the guy at the very left is sitting there eating, <laughs> watching TV, or dropping anchor. Because I'm telling you, that guy is laying a deuce right there with the door open. And all of a sudden, he got caught on national TV doing it, which I think is just the most epically hilarious thing ever. Yeah, great photo. That one, that one broke the internet last night. Yeah, it, well, yes, because it was one of those things where you have to take a still shot of it and take about five minutes to break down everything that's going on. Oh, and we forgot that Mike Vrabel also had the giantest wad of chewing tobacco that he horked out right before <laughs> making the pick. Yeah. Ball. Um, yes, it was, uh, the rest of the draft was, you know, professional. And then you go to Mike Vrabel and it was like, okay, this guy... Uh, I, I don't know if they had to make him pee in a cup afterwards to test what he was on, but this was this was hilarious. <laughs> now, one other thing before we move on about this. Mm-hmm. We always hear, Rick, about all these players and the tough background they're coming from and everything else and how, you know, they've come from difficult circumstances. There were some, my goodness, lovely homes that these players were living in. I don't know if they were in friends' houses or if this is where they grew up, but man, takes away some of the underlying credibility of those stories that every guy who's been drafted has come from abject poverty and difficult situations. Yeah, and there were a lot of stories, uh, you know, of, of these individuals last night. And that, you know, that's pulling at the heartstrings, you know, really captivating the non-football fans. And, and we saw the Nielsen numbers from overnight, you know, upwards of 16 or so million people tuning in last night, which is just absolute. well, not surprising, number one, but an absolutely incredible number. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there were stories of uh, one player was homeless during his, you know, high school days and, and bouncing around from home to home. And some of these places, whether it's, theirs or their parents or, or their friends, whatever the case is, some of them are really palatial estates. And, yeah. you know, you look at the NCAA, and I know there's still an argument and still a debate that maybe it'll come sooner rather than later of whether these players should get paid or not. And I think the, the, the easy road is to play, uh, pay them for the endorsements that they get. But, uh, yeah, it really puts a big question mark over the NCAA and some of their players and, and obviously some of the coaches that are handing them handouts. Uh, but, it, yeah, it was very interesting to see that last night. Uh, the and the irony was the one house that I thought was about the most. I don't. I mean, un, not blowing you away was the one where the dad had played in the NFL for a long time, and it's like, wait a second, how is this the house that is the least impressive? And the guy was an NFL player. I don't get it. Anyway, <laughs> um, moving on just for a couple minutes here because uh, the CFL, while the NFL is getting ready to go in the middle of the draft and all the stuff. The CFL is now, there is apparently a bit of a headbutting going on between the CFL and its players association about what happens if the season in the CFL has to be reduced, because I mean, it seems very likely that's going to be the case. They've already delayed the start, but what if the season can't start to Labor Day and you only play a nine game season or something? You're getting paid in the CFL by the game. And so that would mean the players would only be making half the money that they would otherwise be making. And the Players Association, or at least someone around the Players Association, Rick, has thrown out the idea, look, if you're going to deny a player the opportunity, even though it's not your fault, but if you're going to deny the player the opportunity to make a full living, should they be essentially granted full free agency status so if they could find another job with another league somewhere, they could go do that? Can you ever see the CFL saying that? That I'm sorry, we can't pay you for 18 games. So if you find a better deal, hey, everyone in this league is a free agent right now. 
Yeah, I mean, for, from a league standpoint, I think it's a tough sell because, you know, these players technically did sign a contract to be part of an organization. So technically, you know, you're employed by this employer. Uh, but the fact of the matter is they're not being paid to do their thing because they're not allowed to do their thing. So I hope the CFL just says, hey, listen, uh, for, for the time being, uh, you know, it's it's uh, everything's open. You can go to another league if you want, but you can't go to another team. Obviously, there are free agents who are trying to stick with some teams. Um, but in the same sense, you know, if you're a player, too, and you're latched onto a team, there is some risk if you do go to, you know, uh, an NFL training camp and then can't come back to the CFL. So there is some risk and reward. Uh, I just hope that, you know, cooler heads prevail and they do come to a consensus that both sides are happy with. I'm not sure if that's out there, but uh, I'm hoping for the best. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, certainly I, I don't think anyone is suggesting the idea that, okay, everyone's a free agent in the sense that you can now jump from team to team in the CFL. I was thinking it more the, that you're a free agent to go seek other opportunities if you could land an NFL job. Because right now, what's the rule right now as far as when you can go and be freed from your contract to go and try out for an NFL team? So more often than not, a player will sign a one uh, plus one deal. And that option year, basically, you can go to the National Football League. So you can spend one year in the CFL, and then off you go. It used there. It used to be a two plus one, where you were basically committed to the CFL for at least two seasons, and then go. But hey, a lot of these guys are American guys. They're still looking at their NFL windows being open. Uh, and uh, and more often than not, we've seen in the past, and uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, the player's name escapes me, but he went from the CFL to the XFL. The XFL folded. And now he's coming back. AJ Green, or not AJ Green. Uh, SJ Green. SJ Green, that's it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, but, but there are players in the CFL, and there's not a ton of them. I mean, you don't see this all the time, but there are players who have signed three-year contracts, and now they may be in the first year of that contract. So they don't have, by definition, the out to go to an NFL tryout camp. Whereas now this is kind of what's being suggested. Should that player be allowed to be freed from that not to sign with another cfl team but just to have that opportunity to see if they can land in the nfl I, I, on the one hand you look at rick and you go the cfl probably is going to make its players happy by doing this if it shows that it's open to this but what about the nfl's expanding its practice rosters what if you suddenly lose a team loses two or three players yeah. who aren't even playing but just going on to a practice roster now the league is really hurt yeah, now, uh, more, even more so than that, I mean, the GMs and the coaches are looking around thinking, hey, we just lost two of our best guys. They're now handicapped. You know, that impacts ticket sales, which impacts revenue. So, yeah, this is not an easy, easy decision for the Canadian Football League. Nothing is. And the CFL certainly is not in a position to just pay the salaries. I mean, some leagues can probably cover the cost for a while. I, I don't see the CFL being in that position. No, no, not at all. I mean, we're talking about... You know, a, a salary cap of $5 million plus per team. Uh, you know, some players in the NFL make more than the whole Canadian Football League combined. Uh, so, yeah, if they lose a couple of key players who are obviously big with their marketing departments uh, that help sell tickets, yeah, this is this, this could be some major, major blows for, for uh, you know, a handful of teams in the CFL. Uh, listen, have a great weekend. By the way, for people who uh, who want to see that picture from Mike Vrabel's house, uh, again, it's on the, the spec.com right now. Bob Young is the Tiger King and other not-so-deep thoughts is how you can find it. And uh, you decide if that guy is sitting eating pizza on a chair or doing something a little more defecatory. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Uh, and again, you can also catch Rick and Bubba O'Neill and Steve Milton and me.
on home games. Go on to YouTube, look up Home Games Hamilton, or go on Twitter. You can find it there. Um, love to hear your feedback as well. We, we love doing it, and we would love to uh, hear from you. The, the latest one that's up is whether or not Hamilton should be bidding for the Commonwealth Games. It is, a, it is an active topic because there is a group that is pushing to see what will happen with that and whether that door is open. We uh, break that down on Home Games or Home Games Hamilton if you're looking for it that way. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.